selling a vacation timeshare is a difficult challenge. Years ago, a guy I know was on vacation in Aruba, and there was a place that was selling vacation timeshares. What they did was they offered anyone who came in a free T-shirt and a steak dinner if they would sit through a two-hour sales call about why they should buy the timeshare. Most of us would not sacrifice two hours of a hard-earned vacation to sit through a sales call to get a steak dinner and a T-shirt. But this guy did it more than once. In fact, almost every day of the vacation, he'd saunter over and do it again. Well, a couple years into this process, they installed a computer. And the computer enabled them to see that he had been coming again and again. And they said, I'm sorry, sir, no more steak dinners for you. Well, to teach them a lesson, he bought a timeshare. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about attention. But first, ironically enough, here's a message from our sponsor. Creative isn't who you are. It's what you do. Along the way, creativity has gotten a mystical rap, as if it's some sort of gift. It's not. It's a choice. It's a skill. If you have a job where you get to decide what you do, you are a creative, a working creative, and you can get better at it. I'm thrilled to say that the Creatives Workshop is back, the most active of all the Akimbo workshops. It's about people who want to level up and make a difference with their creative work. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. Like many people who have been thinking about the internet for a long time, I've been writing and talking about the attention economy for more than 30 years. The attention economy contrasts two different words, words that didn't used to be next to each other. Economy, which is based on scarcity, things of value, things that we pay for, the transfer of funds, and attention, something everyone gets exactly the same amount of, something that disappears at the end of every day. So the question is, if we live in a world where the internet is bringing us an abundance of choice, an abundance of information, a place where we can connect and learn and discover things, almost all of it for free, how do we deal with the fact that attention is becoming more scarce than ever before? When Jay Levinson and I wrote one of the guerrilla marketing books years ago, we had the controversial fact in it that the average person sees 3,000 advertisements a day. Today, I think it's easy to argue that that number is at least 50,000 advertisements. By the time you're done surfing on your phone for an hour, you have seen links and pop-ups and pop-unders and audio, not to mention the billboards, the ads in the elevator, and on and on. Advertising has been at the heart of our media culture for a very long time. Advertising works for a really neat reason. It is a tiny tax on the people who consume the media seconds out of every minute, but a huge boon at scale to the people who create the media. So a full-page ad in Good Housekeeping magazine used to cost 80 
$1,000. That pays for a lot of reporting for the magazine. It pays for the print. It pays for their offices, etc. $80,000. However, each person who was reading the magazine can just blow by that ad, and they don't really mind. In fact, if it's a magazine with a topic you care about, like Vogue, I think most people who read Vogue magazine would prefer an issue with ads than an issue without ads. The Yellow Pages, of course, is the best example of this because the Yellow Pages was nothing but ads. You read it because advertisers competed for your attention by buying a bigger ad, and a bigger ad sent a signal to the person who was allocating attention that said, this pizza place, this auto dealer, this restaurant is high status enough, successful enough, cares enough about your attention to buy a really big ad. And so we built a media infrastructure, the one that has defined huge swaths of our culture for generations. It's the media culture that brings us the news, that brings us entertainment. Every once in a while, somebody like HBO or Netflix shows up and they walk away from the ad-based model, instead saying to a select group of people, no, why don't you just pay for this and we'll leave the advertisers out of the equation. Which brings us to my friend Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly, the founding editor of Wired Magazine, the person who coined the phrase 1,000 true fans, the author of the astonishing What Technology Wants, has brought up an idea that has been around for a really long time, since the dawn of email. And that idea is that maybe we could cut out the media middleman and pay the person who is getting the ad to read it. That if attention is valuable, let the people who own the attention, that's you and me, decide which ads we're going to see, and let's figure out how to make sure we get compensated to do that. Well, this isn't really a new idea. If we think about the origins of the post office in the United States, it started before the Revolutionary War. Ben Franklin was our first postmaster general. But what most people don't know is it wasn't until after Franklin was long dead that every single letter had to have a stamp on it, partly because they didn't invent the adhesive for stamps until the 1800s, but mostly because the original way that mail was sent was postage due. A ship captain would collect up mail that people wanted to go to a new town. When he got to town, he'd run an ad, an ad, put it up on a flyer, and list the names of all the people he had mail for. And if you wanted your mail, you would go to this ship captain and pay him so you could get your letter. And so, for the first decades of the Postal Service, when the mailman came to your home, you owed him money. It came postage due. Well, we can turn this model around and say, wait a minute, what if in my email box, instead of spammers stealing my attention, spammers, advertisers, direct marketers could vie to pay me to read their email? Well, you're probably ahead of me. There are some real challenges here. Here are the two big ones. Challenge number one, our cost in attention of processing the offers is high. Deciding which ones you're going to read is a cost you have to incur 
for which you are not compensated. Number two, even more important, far more important, is the challenge of moral hazard. Moral hazard is a term from insurance. And what moral hazard means is that if you have a really good insurance policy on your house, you might have an incentive to burn it down. You might have an incentive to do something that both sides would argue is not in your interest. However, you're getting paid to burn down your house. Well, in the case of reading ads, who exactly is going to stop what they're doing for a nickel and read an ad? A nickel. Well, my guess is the person who's willing to take a nickel to read an ad is not the person the advertiser wants to reach. The CMO of Mercedes famously said that it costs them about $1,000 in advertising to sell one Mercedes. Now, if they knew that they could just hand someone $1,000 and they would buy a Mercedes, they would do it all day, every day. But they don't know. And so they have to keep running ads in lots and lots of places. They have to sponsor polo matches. They have to put ads in The New Yorker. They have to figure out how to be in front of people who would never take a nickel to read an ad because that's the only way brand advertising of a luxury good is going to work, which opens the door to thinking about affiliate deals, multi-level marketing, and direct marketing. So we'll do the direct marketing model first. Direct marketing is marketing we can measure. We know exactly who clicked on it and what they did after they clicked on it. So if you realize that it's worth a dollar to you to have someone see an ad and click on it, well, then you can run as many ads as you can find for 50 cents all day, every day, because you know it's going to work. Direct marketing used to be a little backwater. It was named by Lester Wonderman, an old friend of mine back in the day. And Lester, who also pioneered the American Express Card and the Columbia Record Club, said that direct marketing was action marketing, that we could see it and we could measure it. But it wasn't a big, high-profile way for most marketers to do their work. But then the internet showed up. Google is a direct marketing engine. They show the numbers to everybody. You can see what's working and what's not, and then you bid to run the next ad. Facebook is direct marketing driven. Now, the math of direct marketing is very compelling for the middleman, for Facebook and Google. Here's why. Let's say that it's worth $6 to get someone to click on an ad, and you have a competitor who decides it's worth $6 to have someone click on an ad. What does that mean, worth $6? It means your sum profit, all of it, from that one new customer is $6. Okay, but now there are two of you bidding on placing that ad. If the auction gets up to 5 bucks, are you willing to bid $5.10? You probably are. Well, at $5.90, the auction slows down. But here's what's interesting. Of the $6 of profit that you were going to earn from all of your investment and all of your hard work, $5.90 of it goes to Google and you get 10 cents. That's not a great deal. That's like paying your landlord. It's not fun. So direct marketing has scaled. It has scaled dramatically. What about affiliate marketing? Well, affiliate marketing, you might know about this from the way Amazon and others have done it, is someone, a middleman, gets paid a bounty for bringing in a customer. Uber, for a long time, said that if you go ahead and get us a new user, we'll give you 
$30 in free rides. Tesla still pays people hundreds or thousands of dollars for referring someone who buys a Tesla. One of the challenges of affiliate marketing is it humanizes referrals. But we don't necessarily want the referrals in our life to be bought and paid for. There's a real difference between a friend saying, I heard this new song, it's fantastic, and a friend saying, I heard this new song, I'm going to get 24 cents if you listen to it. We don't want our friends to sell us out. And that's why multi-level marketing has failed to scale beyond a small niche, because most people are uncomfortable selling out their friends for money, and people who are sold out sometimes reconsider their friendships. And so we have a problem. And the problem is when we start to monetize something human and personal, like attention, the monetization corrupts. It corrupts behavior. It corrupts the way we walk through the world. So we have these two problems. One, this idea that we're going to have to sort through the postage due stuff that's showing up to decide which ones we want to take the money from and which ones aren't worth our time. And second, the affiliate model of getting paid in the moment for our attention. Add to this the moral hazard and the fact that you probably don't want attention from people who will sell it for a nickel, and we see the challenge. The challenge going forward of the attention economy. Capitalism has tried to monetize so many things that they say the oldest profession is one in which people will sell their bodies to others. And ever since then, capitalism has been trying to infringe around the edges of what it means to be a person, what it means to be a friend, what it means to be in a community circle. But now that everyone runs a media company, now that everybody is either working for free for a social media company or working for money inside of some sort of social media environment, we've already opened the door to this sort of coarsening. So how then to regain the thing that we hold dear? How to regain the idea that we would like there to be magazines, TV shows, newspapers that aren't in it to maximize clicks, that aren't being measured in the short run every day by direct marketers? Because it's that pressure from the direct marketers that is leading to clickbait that is leading to short-term thinking from media that we used to count on to be more upstanding. The old days, the old days of just three TV networks, it's easy to look back on them and say, well, there were a whole bunch of voices we didn't get to hear from. There were a whole bunch of choices we didn't get to make. But the flip side is this. If you owned a third of all the TV channels in a neighborhood and you were regulated by the FCC, you knew that you had to do some things in the public service. And you also were aware that in the long run, the advertisers who couldn't measure what was working wanted to run their ads in places where there was media that they were proud of. That racing to the bottom, coming up with the equivalent of the National Enquirer on TV, well, sure, that might get you advertising from people who want to sell gold bullion or life insurance in the middle of the night, but it wasn't the media that media titans aspired to make. And so now here we are, having blown that up, having blown up the oligopoly, 
having welcomed the long tail of voices and noise. Still, with the open API that is email, where everyone gets to send postage due email every day because we have to pay with our attention, not with our money, we have a challenge. So a couple things that I worked on years ago that I want to bring up again, because they might not work, but they're interesting to think about. The first one is this. I sat down with the heads of Yahoo, AOL, and a couple other big sites. This was probably 1998. And I said, let's charge for stamps. Let's make it so that email costs a penny. Give every single one of your users a thousand stamps a month for free. And if you need more than a thousand, if you're going to send more than a thousand emails a month, they're going to cost you a penny each. Let's take the money that people are spending on stamps and use it to build all sorts of useful infrastructure for the people who use email. So what would be the net result of this? Well, the net result would be that it would be mostly a zero-sum game of money coming in, coming out, except for outsiders. Outsiders would need to buy a ton of stamps. If you're going to be a spammer and send 10 million emails in one day, which is no big deal for a spammer, that's going to cost you $100,000 in stamps. But the open nature, the egalitarian mindset of the TCPIP-based internet is, no, 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 there isn't going to be a centralized authority that sells stamps. Well, I, for one, think stamps would be really interesting and change the dynamic of how people might choose to buy attention, at least in email. And then the second thing about building an economy where you are compensated for attention. Part of the problem, of course, was how do we spend our time deciding what to spend our attention on? So when I was at Yahoo!, I came up with this idea of simoleons. At the time, Yahoo was the internet. It was the center of all of it. And I said, why don't we do this? Why don't we just have a little tiny number next to every single link throughout all of Yahoo, next to the ads and next to the other links? And if you click on any of them, we'll add that number of points to your simoleon balance. So if an advertiser wants a lot of clicks, they could put 50 or 70 or 90 next to their ad They'd have to buy the simoleons to top up everyone's account. And then, once it started catching on, we could let other sites in on the simoleon economy. So what good are simoleons? What good are frequent flyer miles if you can't fly anywhere? How to empty out people's balances. So this was the cool part. We got a patent on this. The way to empty out people's balances, I said, was every month we'll have an auction. We will auction off millions of dollars of cool prizes and services. Some of them will be donated by sponsors. Some of them will buy from the money we got from selling simoleons. And here's the thing. You can trade and give away your simoleons because guess what? At the end of every month, we zero out everybody's balance. So you might as well bid like a maniac. What this would lead to is an economy where some people don't care at all, but other people, seeing that they had these points, maybe they could sell them to a peer who wanted to collect a bunch of points and win an auction. Maybe they could donate them to charity, or on and on. What I like about this model is A, it's more fun, but B, it creates a media middleman so that all of these points are added up in a place where they matter. So it's not a nickel or a dime at a time. It's a fund, a fund that gets used 
to pay for things that are actually worth reading and actually worth listening to. So no, you're not going to get a steak dinner just because you showed up to listen to a sales call. Anyway, that's my rant. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with three questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Thanks for listening. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question, please visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K and click the appropriate button. Hey, Seth, this is Andy from Los Angeles. And my question is about scalping. Over the last few months, there have been a number of big hardware releases in the entertainment industry. The new Xbox, PlayStation 5, and various PC gaming parts. All of these products have sold out incredibly fast and are now showing up on eBay and other websites for sometimes double the normal price. And this doesn't appear to be a small number of people doing this. There was one group of scalpers that claimed to have 3,500 PlayStation 5s. How can companies stop the scalpers and make sure that their product gets into the hands it was made for at launch? Maybe it's as simple as increasing the number of product the company has on hand, but what would stop the scalpers from just buying more? And is there any motivation for these huge companies to do that when at the end of the day, they're still selling their product. Would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for getting us started, Andy. Uh, companies want two things. One thing they want to do is maximize the revenue in the short run. And the second thing they want to do is create an impact. They want there to be buzz. They want there to be cultural significance to what they do. The best way to maximize revenue is with price differentiation, to charge different people different amounts based on who they are, what they need, and the story they tell themselves about money. So if someone's only got 10 bucks to see a concert, well, charge them 10 bucks. If someone's going to get satisfaction out of sitting in the front row, which is only 20 rows in front of the other person, and the status that comes from buying a luxury good that costs more, charge that person $100. The economics here are clear. Price differentiation is the way to maximize revenue. Now, Scalping has been around a very long time. And until recently, it was incredibly difficult to put a stop to. In the old days, Kmart sold Polaroid film cheaper than the local store could buy it wholesale. So local stores would go and buy their film from Kmart so that they could save a couple pennies. eBay came along and started to add a digital component to how we could buy in one place and sell to another. The increment, the money saved, the money earned, didn't go to the manufacturer. It went to the scalper, the person who was hustling 
to make the market more efficient, which is where the second element of cultural change kicks in. Because the brand manager knows that they're not making as much money as if they were price differentiating, but they also know it's a lot of work to do price differentiation. There's leakage. And if it creates buzz, if that concert sells out in 20 minutes, it's great for the artist to be able to proclaim it's sold out, even if it means that a third of the tickets went to scalpers who then keep the difference for doing the work they're doing, which is creating this whole other level of buzz. It's pretty clear in an age where we are selling direct more and more that it's trivially easy to eliminate scalping because as soon as someone starts buying more than one or two of an item, we can just stop selling it to them. In the last few years, it's become really clear how easy it is to stop people from scalping tickets to a theater or a concert. But a lot of times, the industry, in quotation marks, doesn't want that to happen because the status quo is built around these different levels of people marking things up. If we think about how the airlines have done this, if one day in the future when we're flying again, you look around the plane, it is certain that there are people on that plane who paid less than you and people on that plane who paid more than you for the privilege of being on the very same plane. Jay Walker founded Priceline with a really brilliant idea. He said, look, business travelers want convenience, but tourists, tourists are willing to go through a hassle to save some money. So he went to the airlines and he said, I'm going to do price differentiation. I'm going to sell your leftover tickets really cheap. And the airline said, well, we don't want you to do that because once business travelers find out that they can get cheap tickets from you, we won't be able to price differentiate. Well, he said, I won't tell them what airline it is, and I'm going to give them so much hassle, so much emotional challenge that no business traveler is going to go through the pain and suffering to save 200 bucks. And for years and years, it worked. By charging people something that wasn't involving cash, he was able to differentiate the price. So this is all a long way of saying we could get rid of scalping if the companies really wanted to. But I think what we're seeing is that CEOs and brand managers are deciding that the ease of unloading a lot of stuff combined with the cultural impact of seeing that it's in high demand, that there's a line that people are bidding up the price is worth it. Because in the long run, they see that they're going to profit from that. One last aside on this. Years and years ago in the 1980s, I met Bill Graham, the great concert promoter. And I asked him, how come if you can sell out a Bruce Springsteen concert in 15 minutes, you don't charge way more for the tickets? And he turned to me and he said, look, I know how much money the people in my audience have to spend every year on concerts. And I could charge enough for one Bruce Springsteen ticket that I'd use up their whole budget. But then they won't be back next week for the next artist. So I'm here for the long run. And I'd rather have loyal, consistent concert goers than take all the money all at once. What was unmentioned in his answer, and I don't think it was naivete because he was really smart, is as soon as you do something like that, the scalpers are going to step in and fix the market. They're going to fix it by buying as many cheap tickets as they can and selling them for as much as they can. So thanks for the question. Buy low, sell high. Hey, Seth, this is Richard calling in from Hong Kong, a run-ahead hunting company in Asia. And a lot of what you referenced 
culture versus what we perceive or what society perceives what we can do. I think a big roadblock and barrier we have to that is this this piece of paper we call the resume and the CV. And it's such a purposeful but overinflated and valued document. And I believe companies have a huge advantage to shift away from such a material. How can we get them to look beyond the resume and the story? I believe companies don't hire people with resumes. I believe they hire people with stories. So the biggest challenge that I see for people going on their own to look for jobs right now is to get past the algorithm, to get past the recruiter or the headhunter who doesn't know the role because it's very systematic the way that recruitment processes and hiring processes work. They're processes, but they're not designed to get the best out of someone. So how can companies at scale start to get to this new behavior without sacrificing the so-called efficiency that they all look for? We'd love to hear your thoughts and looking forward to the four-week old MBA. Take care. Thank you for this, Richard. I've been ranting about this since I wrote Lynchpin a long time ago. Most companies don't actually want extraordinary employees performing at an extraordinary level. As it's written in the E-Myth Revisited book, the goal of most companies is to hire the cheapest available, most easily replaceable person for any given job because it gives them reliability. It gives them flexibility. It means that the org chart is filled with boxes. And if you don't want to fill your box anymore, I'll just find someone else to fill it. Companies may talk about the fact that that's not what they're looking for. And a few people who hire a headhunter like you actually want the linchpin, the special person, the person who stands out. And so we're going to see, I believe, a bifurcated model. The first one, which we're already seeing in things like big box stores, is that you can apply for a job using a machine that looks a lot like an ATM. You answer eight questions, you type in your social security number, you're hired. Because they, quite rightly, say, we just want to see how you're going to work when you're at that cash register. If you can show up every day, you can stay here. That is different than pretending that it matters where you went to high school, that it matters what your GPA was. Because guess what? It doesn't. And these organizations that are running at scale They realize that because they have created jobs, computer-assisted, computer-dominated, that are all about being cogs in a machine. And if you've got cogs in a machine, probably it pays to admit that that's what you've got. But then we've got the linchpin jobs. Then we've got the jobs that need to be done by somebody who is bringing soft skills, real skills, attitudes, points of view, innovation, willingness to upset the apple cart. Somebody who is going in their own direction, who has a story, we should be acknowledging that that's what those jobs are. And a resume doesn't help us decode that at all. A resume is just a list of where you have complied. It is a collection of famous brand names to show that you came from privilege, that you have paid your dues. Resume doesn't help us. You're right. What we need is a body of work, a collection of testimonials, and most of all, a story. And that's going to happen for your clients, the ones who care enough, when they really want what we call talent, which I call skill and attitude. And for the rest of the jobs, we should just acknowledge 
we're putting on a show, but we're really hiring a cog. And so I think interviews are overrated. I think resumes are overrated. What we should care about is the work and the approach to the work. Hi, Seth. Liam from Chicago here. I had the, the pleasure of listening to you visiting on Debbie Millman's podcast, and uh, it was a great conversation. I, I couldn't help but notice a, a certain moment of discord uh, when she was asking you about authenticity, and it seemed the two of you kind of missed a little bit of each other's point of view on the difference between authenticity of work and authenticity of self. And I wouldn't be surprised if, it, if that's a distinction that trips a lot of people up. So I would love to hear you expand a little bit more on that difference and how it plays out. <laughs> Thanks a lot for everything you do. Bye. Thanks, Liam. It's true. In my new book, The Practice, I have a rant about authenticity. And I've driven straight into a misunderstanding semantically about what authenticity means. Authenticity of work, as you so brilliantly coin it, means that the work is in and of itself. It reminds us of what the work is supposed to be. It shows the hand of the creator, but it is not about the creator or the creator's mood. It is about the promise, what the work is supposed to be. That when the work is authentic, we can tell because it has a fractal truth to it. It is in and of itself, as I just said. On the other hand, authenticity of self, are you proud of the work you are doing? Are you seeking a feeling of flow? What does it mean to be you? That is a story we tell ourselves. And that is not your audience's problem. It is your problem. You need to make the difficult decision to quit your job at the cigarette company because you cannot authentically be you at the same time you are marketing tobacco. That, yes, authenticity of self is vitally important. To not have it is to have an empty life. That your job is not to support the industrial economy. The industrial economy is here, and your job is to figure out a path through it that feels and works for you authentically. But once you define that path, what will be asked of you, required of you, is the authenticity of work to be able to do the work that you said you were going to do to cause the change you seek to make. Thanks for these great questions. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere. You know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. 
It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.